I mean, generosity, discipline, and renunciation. Oops, I got that already. I would like to say I experience writing a Dharma talk as something like a cross between going to an amusement park and being buried alive. <laughs> and that I can never like wear the same shirt the next day after I've been <laughs> writing. But um, it's also a joy to be able to share. And as one of my Buddhist friends said to me, no one is listening. That's a Buddhist joke. <laughs> so I'm not worried. <laughs> So feel free not to listen. No one is listening, I said. Or talking. Nobody's talking either. Last night, um, Jack spoke about very beautifully about our true identity as uh, something that actually we can't get rid of it. Um, and it's probably what is calling to us that is the power of our practice or the energy of the carousel that Winnie spoke of the first night. And the beautiful qualities of the path, the Noble Eightfold Path, the seven enlightenment factors, or the ten paramitas, or the six paramitas, are all ways of slicing and dicing what are the expressions of that deeper nature and also the ways of learning more about it in ourselves. So the paramitas are specifically appear in the text as all of the aspects of himself or herself that the Buddha encouraged on the many, many lifetimes path to becoming a Buddha. Called the Jataka tales, all those lifetimes of being a rabbit and a bird and a monkey king and a stag and a merchant. These stories in Asia are very, very popular and they teach of human connection to the natural world and of the enlightened qualities of all beings and it used to be that preachers of the dharma in thailand would be the most famous preachers were the monks who could tell a jataka tale the best and they would crouch in this sort of little wooden cage in this certain way um that their balls had to hang a certain way down so that they could do all the different voices, the voices of the women and the men and the frogs. And everybody loved it, like kids love it, grown-ups love it. Um, just hearing the stories of this many, many lifetimes practice. <laughs> but the message in these stories is not only of our, the capacity of you know, existence to sort of love itself, but that also we begin wherever we begin this journey and that it's actually in a certain way complete in having begun to side with our sanity, to side with our Buddha nature. So beginning here and now, wherever we are, all beings welcome in our hearts, all states of experience welcome in our loving awareness. And all of us welcome here in this community of trust that we've built. I really like to acknowledge the community-ness of what we're doing here and to encourage each of us to remember and look around from time to time at all of us who are supporting one another, siding with our sanity, crossing the river of existence together. The first paramita of generosity or giving was the first practice that the Buddha taught to people. And I wonder um, if, in, if you in the community out there would raise your hand if you know who Amanda Palmer is. Does anyone know who Amanda Palmer is? Only one person knows? She's a rock star from Boston. Nobody knows of her? Darn. Oh, well, did you ever hear of the Dresden Dolls? All right, forget it. <laughs> You'll soon know who she is. <laughs> She's a rock star. She uh, sort of sings with a piano. She used to have, uh, her boyfriend used to be her kind of band, but she broke up with him, so now she's kind of by herself with other like mem band members. And 
I've been to several of her concerts. I'm not like the deepest fan, but I do love her and admire her for the way that she both opens her heart as a performer and also makes herself available to people as a person. Like she really does a lot of work for um, to kind of inhabit her role as a rock person to show everyone that she's a person and connect that way. Being a person to her fan, to her fans, not really a star. There's a real courage in the way that she kind of sings about her experience. Um, and her style may not be anybody in this group's style, but recently she became famous and it may be notorious is that she decided to leave her record label because she felt the normal way of making a record was not the way she wanted to do it. So she went on the Kickstarter site and asked her fans for $100,000 to make an album and a tour. And she got 12 times that amount in $1.2 million. Later she talked about this and um, gave a talk about the experience of asking for help and asking for support. And she said, it's just so difficult to ask for anything in our culture. Like people just don't feel ready to do that, to make themselves that vulnerable. Through the very act of asking people, I connected with them. And when you connect with them, people want to help you. It's kind of counterintuitive for a lot of us. We don't want to ask for things. It's not easy because asking makes you vulnerable. She went on talking about it and saying that when we really are able to see each other, then we actually want to help. And I think it's really the beauty of that, of taking the shame away from vulnerability that made people respond to her so generously, to take it from a sense of insufficiency and shouldn't do it and should go doing it the normal way and not make this kind of personal naked appeal to people and make it into a kind of dignified mutual interactions. So she now has her, the CD that she, or the album that she made is now available for download and you can give as much as you want or nothing. You can just have it if you want it or you can give her something, whatever you would like. And she has her critics, this Amanda Palmer, uh, who kind of thought she should go a different way or who felt that she didn't account properly for all the money that she got and she may not be like a perfect person, but actually being perfect isn't the point and isn't the point of what in her music and her way of doing things actually becomes so real and beautiful and, and uh, feeling the love kind of thing. So I'd like to speak of generosity as a kind of permission, as a kind of gift that we give to ourselves to be perfectly imperfect in our practice, in our life, in the way we give attention and what we're willing to give attention to, how we may sometimes be able to be with our experience and sometimes not so able. And also in terms of giving in to this big thing that we're asking of ourselves, this task of being in the retreat. Winnie spoke the first night of a kind of intention or aspiration and the surrender to this intention is so profound. You've already done that, like you've already kind of given in to that yearning and you're starting or continuing to do what's needed, giving to yourself these days and this time all that it took to get here and all that it takes to stay here. I work with different people in the outer world and one of the people that I speak with, uh, not so regularly, but she talked about she had just started really to practice 45 minutes a day and within the space of a couple of months, she said she's figured out that she can let herself be messy. So generous, generous to the actual being that we are. 
So I want you to sense into that, the generosity of giving attention in this way, to feel the kind of softening and allowing and almost like an internal stretching feeling. That's what I feel. To be ready to respond to ourselves as we are in in any moment. Distracted or messy or... So much of the path is not about going somewhere else. It's actually the work is to come to here. To see that as an act of giving, giving in your attention, but also giving from the heart to yourself. How do we respond to ourselves in each moment? And you might sometimes in the day ask if you're being really generous with yourself, if you're being generous with your caring and attention, just as a question. Sometimes the question itself is liberating and brings the space of a little bit more ability to give. Jack's story about the sort of golden Buddha inside the clay one. It's not really looking for someone else who's inside us that we haven't yet discovered. It's this innate quality of our responsive heart that we're exercising here. All of us have it. All beings have it, as the Jataka tales speak of. Scientists have decided that, you know, the syndrome of having several infants in one room like babies in a hospital, if they're in the neonatal ward and one of them starts crying, then often they all will start crying. It's kind of like they resonate with empathy for one another and that's the way they show their care. Toddlers, they've also shown, like to help people. Like if you drop something on the floor, toddlers like to try to give it back to you. Very, very young babies, when they're shown a video of like sort of different kinds of interaction between cartoon characters, they prefer to look at the cartoon characters that are helpful than the ones that are like taking away the toys of the other cartoon characters. This starts almost as soon as they can or they or we can learn how to control where our eyes go. Where we like to rest is in that state of kindness and generosity. That's a resonance that we have. And I'm hoping through these words to evoke your recognition of, of that, of the beauty of this part of us and the beauty of our capacity to do this. Jack spoke about the rats sharing their chocolate chips. I really love that story. And if, you know, your heart is quivering in that, it's that soft spot in us might actually be our enlightened essence, that sense of capacity to be tender. As we give our generous and loving attention to ourselves at all moments and all times, we give our generous attention to joy and to sorrow and to distraction and to the many patterns that each of us carries of sort of tightness or suffering or disbelief, being able to be with ourselves at those times. I'd like to offer that in a little additional piece that I use in my own practice, which is to acknowledge uh, the good intentions of even some of the most difficult parts of myself that part of the reason I am this way is because I was trying to, this part of my mind was trying to protect me or my heart was trying to protect itself. It actually had a good intention or it wanted to take some kind of shortcut. Um, So when difficult things are arising in the heart mind, I offer that you might say, somehow there's an intent to goodness here in this anxiety, in this criticism, It can be discovered if you kind of allow it and invite it. And that often allows the pattern to sort of settle down a little bit and let itself be seen and softened by the other resources of mindful attention. It's being in a kind of loving and willing dialogue with what we experience. It's being willing to trust that goodness is more basic And that can feel risky at times. It's something that we might have to give, you know, give some credence to temporarily. That the goodness in us is indestructible. 
and the suffering in us can be eradicated. So it's more superficial. That's part of what the Buddha's message is about, to say that um, suffering can die, but goodness can't. Goodness cannot be destroyed. So in this way, I like to think that my body, this fragile and vulnerable body, this body that has the nature to age, is enlightened in itself already. That the aliveness and experience is also enlightened in itself already. And that it's the job of the being that I take to be myself to go toward that and to acknowledge and trust and be generous enough to let that be true. To trust that the deepest goodness is in us kind of waiting to be discovered rather than that we have to create it or build it up or become it through our efforts. It's so much easier to rest in that sense of being willing to trust. As a teacher that Trudy and I know and love well, and Jack also knows, and many of you may also know, Anam Tubton says, our biggest disappointment in life isn't that we lost our job or that our heart's been broken, but that we've lost touch with our Buddha nature. So... So generosity is also an outer practice. The first thing that the Buddha taught householders and villagers to do to establish ourselves on the path of freedom. And many studies now, like science, is taking an interest in these practices of the heart. And they've shown, for example, that if you give a bunch of experimental um, people, such as the ones in this room, if you give people $20 to do with what they will, if they spend it on themselves, they're not as happy at the end of the day than if they figure out how to give it to someone. And I think we all have the sense like that if we feel that we're giving back something of value to the world through the way that we live and through the efforts that we make, that that's a source of real joy and happiness and meaning. Like There are people who have jobs who don't feel that their job really expresses very much that's of value and how difficult that can feel. Whereas sometimes those of us who have jobs that may not be as sort of you know, lucrative outwardly, but are rewarding inwardly, have a sense of real fulfillment. That's just a truism that's been part of civilization since time immemorial. The nice thing is to be able to have work that's both supportive of our well-being on the sort of material level and also feels like we're giving something from ourself that means something to us and to other people, that there's a sense of being received in that way, of the meaning being transmitted. And that's not unspiritual. The outer practice of generosity is something that you're also doing here in just keeping the container of the retreat for one another. I guess the last thing I'll say about generosity is that it, it persuades us, if we begin to practice it, that we have something to give, that we're not lacking in any way. And giving can be something very creative. It's not that you have to strip yourself of what you need. It's more as if you discover what it is that you have to offer. There's a story in the... Uh, I think it's from the book, The Dharma Brothers. I've kind of lost touch with the source of this inspiration, but I found it very moving, and I've used it in my own practice quite often. A prisoner, a male uh, member of the incarcerated population of our country, which we'll call him, because I can't remember the source, the unknown soldier, kind of, probably a man of color, probably having received much of the worst that society has to dish out, said that in his meditation practice, when he feels these uncontainable, difficult energies of rage and frustration and hate and sadness and grief, that he finds it possible to give the energy of that intensity away to imagine that it's going to someone in this world who just doesn't have enough energy, so that he's sort of healing the people with chronic fatigue and people who just don't have sort of the force in themselves to face their life. So in that, you can see the transformative power of making an offering of things that may not seem worthy of being offered. And the beauty of how the human mind 
can use our circumstances to be sort of a blesser of this world. So whatever kind of life you have or whatever kind of practice you have, I'd like you to consider that what you're doing here, offering this loving attention to yourself, is also will end up being something you can offer to the world. It's also one of the ways that human beings learn empathy is kind of by knowing our internal state. Then we can know the states of others, like the way we observe our sadness. Then when we know someone else is sad, we know kind of how they feel so we can connect. So whatever you're able to connect with in yourself may become your offering to others. Annie Dillard says, the poet, she says, we are here to notice each thing, so each thing gets noticed. Together we notice not only each mountain shadow and each stone on the beach, but we especially notice the beautiful faces and complex natures of ourselves and each other. We are here to bring to consciousness the beauty and power that are around us and to praise the people who are here with us. We witness our generation and our times. We watch the weather. Otherwise, creation would be playing to an empty house. So today, I was uh, walking to the this place to sit, and I was just looking up the hill, and the turkey walking across, and I was kind of giving metta to my friend the turkey and the life that it has as its own being, and thinking like this is the romantic season of the turkeys, like they eventually they're starting their displays, and just in the moment of looking at the turkey, it just spread open its tail, like a, sort of like the peacock thing the turkeys do, and then it shut it up again. And it was something in the exchange of giving and receiving, being there, like the vibrancy of exchange that also felt like a way of talking about generosity where giving and receiving happen in one moment. I did have a sense that the turkey knew I was there. So the second transcendent discipline is the sila or or, uh, ethics it's called or also discipline and Trudy is going to speak more and much more about uh, ethics or compassionate behavior tomorrow so I will try to compress this part of the talk I've now forgotten what time I started so we'll see (laughs) we're crossing the ocean of samsara together (laughs) It's a timeless, timeless experience. Anyway, within the space of generosity that I described and giving of our loving attention and somehow having determined that this being who we are is actually worth saving, we also accept and apply what's offered, at least here in this tradition, as a kind of ethics of attention or a practice of being here, being with Can we be with our experience without reactivity? So to bring ourselves to be present and non-judging this sort of defining quality of mindfulness is that it's loving and it's not judging or blaming or criticizing or any of that. It's just the simple uh, ability to witness what's going on with care. As John said this morning, holding our experience like a baby bird, it's like you hold it and you don't drop it, you don't turn away from it, but you don't squish it either, and you don't like try to pull its wings out and say, fly, or any of that kind of stuff. <laughs> you hold it as what it is. You hold it in its own nature. So this ethics of attentional training, I'm sure you're all aware that you're doing this, that you're bringing yourself back and back again, whether it's to the breath or to the body, to the sense of embodiment, to the multi-dimensional experience that Pascal described so beautifully in the first day of inviting us to relate to the land and the air and so many dimensions of our experience, but in the moment to be, to be here and experience them. That's the discipline, and it's not a harsh kind of blaming, um, kind of beating yourself up kind of thing. My friend Susan Piver, who's a meditation teacher, said, This gentle coming back is our first clue to what true discipline is. It has 
nothing to do with bullying yourself. It has nothing to do with good or bad. In fact, it has nothing to do with anything other than simply coming back. There's no narrative. It just is what it is. Coming back is always possible, whether to your breath, the taste of your food, or the bell that calls us to the sitting or tells us the sitting has ended. So it has nothing to do with bullying ourself or judging ourselves for having been lost. In fact, it's being lost that allows us to come back. So that's kind of a funny way of taking it. But it's actually the wandering of attention or the wandering of our being that allows wisdom to arise. Since it's only when the mind or the attention has wandered into thinking or has moved that we actually start to recognize uh, what thinking is. I think that you all probably know what that's like, that you suddenly sort of wake up to having, to being gone. And it's kind of that that starts to incorporate all of our experience into the capacity to be aware of it and see what its nature is to not be caught. We have this discipline of resting in the moment or resting on the breathing that kind of hones the attention. Like as we actually experience the breathing, we develop kind of harvesting information from the breath and the body. And then when the mind goes away, some of that residual power is able to observe the nature of the thinking, may be able to observe whether the thought is a challenging one or a pleasant one, may be able to say like, oh, you know, how funny that I'm thinking right now about, you know, what kind of music my niece likes or something like that, like why she likes Beyonce, how dare she like me, or, you know, something like that. It's so interesting that she has such a different experience, something like that. And to have the mind sort of recognize sort of the nature of the experience of thinking is really only due to both the practice of trying to stay with the body and breath or present experience and the experience of understanding that we've wandered. So discipline is actually something very sort of subtle in this practice. Coming back and back again has this kind of magic to it a kind of way of also developing um, a way of facing our experience to know that we can come back and back. And it's another indication of our essential Buddha nature or the part of us that actually lives in a way outside the stream of time or outside the control of circumstance that it's possible to come back. You know, that when our mind wanders, it doesn't completely get stuck in wandering forever, that it eventually is able to return, that there's always both something to come back to and the ability to return. Cultivated more and more, you become more kind of grateful for that capacity just to be with experience, and it starts to unfold very, very many wonders and miracles. Call it a miracle anyway. Not like walking through walls. Gandhi, when he was young, was skinny and bullied kid and used to get pummeled at school all the time and come home crying, run away, run home, and... There was an older woman who cooked at the house, and uh, she was named Ramba. And she became one of his teachers. She said, it's perfectly all right to admit that you're afraid, but try this next time you feel threatened. Instead of running away, stand firm and repeat the mantra, Rama, Rama, which is one of the names of God, or one of the names Hindu and Buddhist deities are often a little different from sort of gods outside. They're sort of embodiments of wisdom or like one's own wisdom. They're not necessarily so separate from us internally. But anyway, he did it somewhat successfully in school, but it was 10 years later when he was in South Africa and he began the movement of nonviolent, non-cooperation that he practiced Rama Rama more seriously, found that in moments of conflict and fear, it really was able to calm his mind and body. And also, as he incorporated it more and more into his regular schedule and took time to do formal meditation practice, particularly many hours of walking meditation every day, that was one of Gandhi's main practices, he integrated this sense of fearlessness into his being to such a degree that he was able to transform a whole country and persuade a colonized and oppressed group of human beings that they were worth saving and that they didn't have to collaborate with violence and oppression Really, I feel that, that his practice was the source of a lot of that charismatic power that he had. He said that nonviolence um, 
and cowardice are not connect, not easily connected. I think he called it they're ill-connected, something like that. Nonviolence requires a great deal of courage. His teacher, Ramba, the lady, said that um, having a place to come back to is kind of like training our mind. And she compared it to the mind being like an elephant walking through a market. Some of you may have heard this simile before, that if you give it something to hold on to, like a stick of bamboo, the trunk of the elephant is satisfied and doesn't wander around like grabbing onto whatever, you know, rotten or disgusting or delicious stuff that might happen to be in the environment. In our case, we don't repeat the name of God necessarily. We repeat returning to the actual experience in the moment. That's our path. And I would say there's magic in the contact of awareness and experience. There's something that happens there that's very hard to boil down that is kind of the source of all the lists of paramitas and enlightened qualities. So this too is in us, the capacity always to come back. Another one of my Tibetan teachers, Drukchen Rinpoche, was taken to see an animal act where this little cockatoo rode a bicycle across a tight wire. And he said, if a cockatoo can ride a bicycle across a tight wire, human beings should be able to learn how to meditate. (laughs) 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 So before I abandon the topic of discipline, I want to talk about the psychology of of practicing, of just doing it for its own sake, because it's so easy for our mind to start thinking that we're involved in a kind of like a business deal. Like if I do it, if I do this, then something else will happen. It becomes a kind of transaction. On the one hand, we're sort of relying on universal laws that like when we attend to our experience without reactivity, it's a different kind of cause and effect path that opens up based on connecting with our experience in this way rather than adding the reaction chemicals to the mix. So we give it sort of this distilled, beautiful water of awareness and it it moves a different way, but it's not because we expect it to. It's like there's something needs to be very innocent in the contact of attention and experience, something kind of naked or undefended, kind of back to the generosity feeling. And there's also the sense of what it feels like to give yourself unconditionally to this method, to this practice. And if you're an artist or an athlete or just any kind of person, you probably know this, that there's a part of sort of any discipline that is just about just doing it. Jenna Malamud, the daughter of Bernard Malamud, the writer, wrote about pottery. And while you may complete many projects, the labor itself is never finished and the mastery never total, final. This incompleteness by turns fetching and vexing is part of its essence. Each moment of mastery is merely a breather snatched at an overlook during a long hike, a snapshot, a sip of water, a tightening of one's bootlaces. But it's not an arrival the point of arrival wavers like a heat mirage on a road. And somehow I think we're all sort of, or at least I often tend to wish for the point of arrival, like to project something into the future about where I'll be or what I'll be like or how I might become. And on a certain level, that's a wonderful thing to sort of hear through our own minds, some of the promises of the ideas that um, are possible for us. But on the other hand, there's ways that the illusion of reaching perfection is just another cause of suffering. So in our practice here, like some days you seem to be flying down the path of liberation and other days it's like you can barely get out of bed. And if you're a singer, you know you have a better chance of hitting your note if you imagine the note and continue to exercise the vocal cords. So it happens like that. So the discipline is actually of being friendly and coming back to each moment, discovering a different kind of integrity or integration. Again, the outer, the sense of outer discipline is uh, sometimes 
necessary to take some kind of outer action. And here, we're practicing the discipline of, you know, sort of a little bit of surrendering to rules and to times and schedules that seem to facilitate this internal connection. But there's times in the world when we really need to take our internal connection and our sense of justice into doing what's right, whether or not the outcome is known or we just um, kind of have to take action. Sometimes discipline is unpleasant. Like sometimes you don't want to get out of bed and come to the first sitting. I think everyone knows that. Or depending if you're a morning person or a night person, there's the piece of it that sometimes feels that you're not in the most welcoming moment, and still you just keep doing it. There's courage in that. I'd like to read a short thing about sort of enlightenment through doing what's right just because it's right. Um, This is from a book called Beautiful Souls about whistleblowers and people who, um, you know, refuse to participate in different kinds of genocides and stuff like that, and mostly very ordinary people. This woman was a woman from Mexico who had a single mother with uh, also had breast cancer at the time when she was working at some kind of firm in Houston that was selling bad securities to people. And she believed somehow in the ideas of citizenship in the U.S. and what the rule of law was, and she had a kind of idealistic piece to her, so she was willing to start to report this malfeasance. She, uh, these bonds were also being sold across the border to people in Mexico. So it was just a big sort of crime of those boom years that we all may remember, um, all the dishonesty of greed in the banking system. So she was both fired and sued and nobody listened. Like she didn't get much out of it. It wasn't like everybody said, oh, right, you know, and started to rally around her for speaking the truth and reward her at all. So... She was asked at the end um, what it was like for her to do this, um, to lose her job, to kind of lose everything for, for her sense of truth. So she was asked if she would do it again. That was a question. Probably so, she said finally. Yeah, I would. I would have done it again because it was the right thing to do. It's just, she continued, searching for words, I don't know. It's a need. It was the right thing to do, and I... F- feel like my actions, my intentions, have to have some sort of meaning in my life. The halting voice and long silences suggested this was a question she preferred not to dwell on. Perhaps privately she entertained doubts about whether going through life so firmly anchored to her convictions was really worth it. Yet the more I got to know her, the more I sensed she didn't draw her greatest satisfaction from things that came easily to her. She drew it from the process of overcoming the unexpected obstacles that always seemed to be falling in her path. So it was when she'd been an unemployed single mother with two toddlers, no money, breast cancer. So it was in Baton Rouge where looking out at the sea of former investors in the audience, many of them senior citizens with gray hair and walking canes, she felt a pang of outrage. She also felt the fury of the regulators, including a man who fixed her with a contemptuous glare. He looked at me in my eyes like, why are you doing this, she recalled. You're betraying us. How dare you? That's what he was telling me with his eyes. Then she started speaking, and as often in the past when facing her biggest fears, her nerves steadied and she found her courage. When I was sitting reading my testimony, my fear went away, she said. It was like a light came into me. My voice grew, and I said everything very clearly, and everything just felt perfect. Perfect. So coming back again and again to a sense of integrity and integration through this discipline of kind of integrating awareness in our present state. Paramita of discipline. So lastly, uh, the paramita of renunciation or letting go. I'd like to call it letting be rather than letting go. I think that helps me feel like it doesn't have to be pushed away. Sometimes I mind doesn't really know how to let go. Sort of the movement is not familiar. <laughs> so here we talk about it in the beginning of the retreat of taking what you get, like your, the room that you get or the cushions that you get or the meals as they are and trying to develop a sense of appreciation for what is. 
appreciating and taking on the coughing of the person next to us or their rustling constantly like inability to be settled or still with their pain. The sense of our having made our mistakes, like maybe some of us feel like we made mistakes even today that sort of feel difficult to bear or endure. So with renunciation, there's a way that you can let it be true and yet renounce piling on more guilt and reactivity to it. Our mind has no statute of limitations and some say no shame. It's, you know, we talked about the elephant in the marketplace. It just is very outgoing and it tends to grab onto lots of different stuff. Bhante Gunaratna says, and echoed, echoing a, uh, something Jack said last night, sooner or later you'll discover that you're completely insane. <laughs> that being with your mind is like being trapped with a madman in a phone booth rolling down a hill. <laughs> so our experience, just as it is in this moment, often requires letting go or letting it be and letting it be this is what is rather than what we would rather be having or seeing or feeling or experiencing. And that's a big deal. This is not about pushing away what's true or getting rid of something. Trudy often speaks so beautifully about to love the life that you have. That's renunciation. To live the life you have and to love the life that you have. And to have the courage to admit who we are with that same vulnerable heart that I spoke of at the beginning. We touch our pain with love. We renounce having had another life than the life that we have had. We leave room and we allow the natural unfolding of this practice sometimes to bring up things that have happened to us in the past that are painful, in part, I think, because there's an invitation of the loving heart to make space for these experiences and to hold them in love and to hold them in the trust and safety of this community that's built kind of in order for us to be able to purify our reactivity to these things. Another way of contemplating renunciation is to be willing to let go of whatever it is that brings suffering. That requires some examination and often requires like a lot of trial and error because we don't always recognize how many of our habits actually bring suffering. We think we keep doing it again and again thinking it's going to work for us. And eventually, like someone else might have to ask you, how's that working for you? Is it really working for you? (laughs) So... Sometimes, let's say, renunciation and desire have a relationship. And I want to say for sure that not all desire is bad. Certainly not. There's desire that's very beautiful and healthy and that giving to yourself certain things is healthy and wholesome and brings well-being. So we don't always know. In fact, we have to be in the experience of desire to sort of see where it's leading, to know whether desire is wise and unwise to experience it in the moment. And it can manifest as either like a really hard kind of pull that feels like you can't do anything other than what it's saying. Or it can be the subtle seduction again to go into the story that I'm deficient or something's wrong with me or I'm not worth saving or this world is such a mess that what's the point or any of those kinds of stories that are not wholesome, not healthy and the product of what's called wrong view, which is something we'll be exploring more to be willing to ask of our stories whether they're actually all true is a form of renunciation. Is it really, really true? And if if we think it's true, then as teacher Byron Katie says, how does it make you feel when you're holding that belief about yourself or someone else? And what would happen if you were able to relinquish that story about yourself, especially the story of lacking, especially the story of not being adequate or not being worthy? which is such a powerful story that the Buddha himself met up with it many times. It was actually what allowed him to become enlightened and liberated. And here he is in the moment of, portrayed in the moment of freaking out when Mara, or the personification of low self-esteem or whatever it was, came to him and said, you're not worth getting enlightened. And so he was so destabilized by it that he had to put his hand on the earth to sort of like 
steady himself and ask of all beings whether it was whether he was worthwhile and it was actually in recognizing his worthiness that the liberation was able to arise in his mental continuum so please any time that you start to feel that sense of comparison of yourself with another each time that you find one of those stories taking grip on you there's a delicate balance of relinquishing believing that story about who you are and being able to be with it as in your experience to be able to say this is how it feels to believe that i'm unworthy this is how it may f- this is how what it feels like to be very contracted in this moment this being here and now is experiencing lots of sadness or this being here and now is being deeply challenged and that's a way that we can just in a very homey and simple way bring our loving attention to the experience with that magic of loving attention that transforms an obstacle into a meditation object so all of us teachers here are kind of veterans of many of these things like we've been through i would say um lots of needs for renunciation both in our practice and in our life i want to say that we've been willing to not keep doing bad things to ourselves and others through things that are very normal and ordinary like what things have we not been willing to keep doing anymore um how we've related each of us here to some of us serious illness some of us homophobia others very intimate betrayal and i know that for each of us the challenge was of letting go of what was a suffering condition was often some much harder than continuing in the suffering like just from my conversations with the people here and knowing what our lives have been like that sometimes relinquishing that story about who and what we are is quite a big challenge it takes a really big amount of courage it's almost like a you have to be willing with all of your cells of your body to be kind to things in yourself and other people that you really would rather not and the the courage that it takes to let go of the habit of grasping on again and again to those interpretations and those stories and those internalized cultural projections and everything that we've learned is really like an act of great bravery and generosity the poet charles bukowski said we're here to unlearn the teachings of the church the state and our educational system we're here to drink beer that's charles bukowski we're here to kill war we're here to laugh at the odds and live our lives so well that dre- death will tremble to take us so it's not as if our enlightened nature is actually you know has a form or a shape or arms and legs like the aspiration that when he the intention that when he was talking about it's kind of may not be an actual material thing that you know we can discover like a where your lost cell phone is it's always available though in the moment of letting go of this kind of toxic narrative of lack who we are the belief that we are lacking it's often um just in the midst of being able to be with something difficult that we discover that sense of being able to be easy or being able to be loving that we can do it chris jordan a filmmaker was making a film about midway island and part of his sort of pitch for the film was do we have the courage to face the realities of our time and allow ourselves to feel deeply enough that it transforms us and our future come with me on a journey through the eye of beauty across an ocean of grief and beyond so i'll close with a quotation from a book review it's a recent book uh by a woman named emily rap called still point of the turning world and it's the story of her life with a child that was sort of born with a really difficult disability that 
made it be very disabled and also live only for three years. So it was a very short life. And her sense was to make, discover what the meaning would be in this kind of really difficult, I'd say, tragedy. The reviewer said, uh, just to sum up the book, the hollowness of the pursuit of happiness and the hunger for perfection is what she discovered, and that parents exist to honor their children, not the reverse. That the book is a tribute to a rich and meaningful life of a child named Ronan, who died at age three. And here's what Emily uh, Rapp herself said, which I think is quite relevant to our practice here and to any kind of moment that you might, like this one that we find ourselves in together right now. Sitting with Ronan on the couch, I often thought, how could I make this moment more precious? And then I'd realize with a sense of panic that no additional meaning needed to be sought or found. This was all there was. So thank you for your kind attention. Let's sit a little here, just a few moments together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.